So welcome everyone to Human-Centered Security. I am here today with Kevin Goldman. Kevin, thank you so much for joining me today. Happy to be here. Thank you for having me. So to start us off, tell us a little bit about yourself. Oh boy. All right. Um, well, I'm here in Phoenix, Arizona, uh, and I'm a design executive, been doing this for quite a long time in uh, a lot of different industries, but the last eight years I've focused on security and largely in identity and access management. Um, spent a lot of time uh, with a startup in the space and also with FIDO Alliance, who um, an industry alliance that creates specifications for this space and modern authentication protocols. Yeah, can you tell us a little bit more about the FIDO Alliance and who they work with, why it was founded, just in case folks have never heard of it before? Oh yeah, sure, absolutely. So FIDO Alliance, as I mentioned, it's a global industry standards body. Uh, it's a, a membership-based organization, but a nonprofit. It has, I think now 44 board member companies. Some of those board member companies are Apple, Google, Microsoft, Cisco, 1Password, Wells Fargo, Visa, MasterCard. <laughs> exactly, just go down the list of the, uh, the big tech companies. But a lot, of, a lot also in uh, financial services. And then there's also a lot of partners. Um, um, government bodies that are partners of the FIDO Alliance and then other industry alliance organizations around the world. So it's been around about 10 years. And the mission of FIDO Alliance is to rid the world of its over-reliance on passwords. If you look at a lot of the breaches that occur throughout the world, uh, you'll see the vast majority the root cause analysis leads back to passwords. And um, passwords are a factor of something that you know and um, often are written down and shared and are fishable and uh, socially, more easily socially engineered, et cetera. So um, maybe we'll talk about it more in depth later, um, but FIDO Alliance has created um, the technical specifications for modern authentication that doesn't require or doesn't rely on just something you know, like a password. And the last few years, let's say last three, four years, FIDO Alliance is focused equally on that security, that, that underlying um, cryptography and um, um, security protocol, as well as the end user experience. So sort of acknowledging that we have to also make the systems usable in order to keep them secure. Of course, you know, because when something's not easy to use, people just find ways to work around them. Yes. If a security control is not easy to use, people will find ways to work around them. Yeah, I think of it as like this dynamic ecosystem where every action of every player, everything that the enterprise does or the design, like every design decision impacts what the user is going to do. Then what the user does impacts what the next, you know, 
the next security control and then what the threat actor does impacts the user like it's just like this like ping pong of of different things happening and everyone affects everybody else so to think that you operate in you know this like simplistic world of you know i do a and then this you know b happens it's just like too simplistic of a view it's really much more dynamic than that very much so so one of the the reasons that I wanted to talk to you was because you've worked on pass keys. And I'm hoping before we delve into that conversation, you can tell us what pass keys are, just in case folks are not familiar with with pass keys. Absolutely. Um I'd love to, so I'll, I'll describe what pass keys are, but I'd love to go back to something you just said, if that's okay. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, you described sort of this. Usually I don't say anything smart on the podcast, so I appreciate <laughs> something else. No, you were describing like this whack-a-mole situation yeah. where, you know, with the threat actors and with the users and with the enterprise, I, I just, as you were describing that, such a great example seems to be, um, uh, two-factor authentication. Funny you know, you say so that. Yeah. <laughs> for years we've had passwords, and then the last many, many years—ten, fifteen years—there's um, real been a strong push, and consumers are very aware of this now. That something called two-factor authentication or multi-factor authentication is better for me, and it definitely is. But the funny thing is, initially, let's say um, a two-factor authentication where you sign in with a password and then you receive a code to your phone and you have to enter that six-digit code into the site or service that you're logging into, that's considered two-factor and that is more secure than a password, but that's where the whack-a-mole has happened because the... Um, the bad people, the bad actors know how to fish those so well, yeah. know how to fish multi-factor authentication, uh, two-factor authentication, and even things like SIM, SIM swapping, mm-hmm. where bad actors can relatively easily have those text messages forwarded to them right. instead of to you. And so what initially was a great security control and great concept over time, uh, it's again, a -a whack-a-mole situation where um, even the two-factor authentication is not considered very secure anymore. Mm -hmm. That that actually segues to passkeys, but I just wanted to lay that out. Maybe the audience is, is familiar with that concept of was secure at one point, but now not as secure. Yeah, no, I think it's a great thing to point out. It's funny you say that because I use that example in my book um, for that exact reason. It's just like, it's such a perfect thing of like, well, we we introduced this friction because passwords just weren't cutting it. But, oh, go, look, you know, the threat actors figured out a way around this as well. Um, it, it is. It's just, it's this crazy game of whack-a-mole. But yeah, so let's let's kind of segue into pass keys and you sure. know it's kind of like hopefully it's not as big of a whack-a-mole situation as <laughs> as two-factor authentication. But yeah, get, to get us started, just tell us a little bit about pa- pass keys. What are they? How do they work? 
Absolutely. So we mentioned Fido Alliance, one of the um, uh, sort of pillars of the work that Fido Alliance has done is to create the specifications for these things called passkeys. We are all familiar with unlocking our phones mm-hmm. a thousand times a day. It works really well. It's a really proven pattern. It's a very clear mental model, like really globally, everybody knows how to unlock their phone or device. What passkeys do is allow you to sign into a service, sign into a website in the same way that you unlock your phone. Mm-hmm. So if you have a phone that uses Touch ID, you can now use Touch ID to log into a website through a browser or log into an app or log in even on your PC or your MacBook um, using that device unlock method. Now there's a lot more to it, but the most simple way of explaining passkeys is that um, you now have the ability to get into services with the same way you unlock your device. Yeah, really uh, decreasing that that friction that a password, you know, I think everybody is pretty uh, aware of the, the limitations of passwords and why they're so annoying. Um, Absolutely. And I, and I should, I describe the kind of the most simple terms, but I, yeah. you know, from a security perspective, this is better than the password. It's even better than the password plus 2FA we talked about because now some people might know what public key cryptography is. Some people might not, but let's just say that there's technology behind pass keys that make it resistant to phishing. So if I get a spam email that want, you know is trying to get me to click on a website, yeah, click on a link that takes me to a website that looks exactly like my banking website, mm-hmm. with pass keys, there's no way for that pass key to be able to be used on that fake website. Because it won't recognize it. It really, won't, right? they won't recognize yeah. it. It won't work. The passkeys are bound to a domain. They're scoped to do- a domain. And so you might have, um, you know, if your bank name is uh, acmebank.com, the fake website might be acmebankwith2as.com. Mm-hmm. Right. So it looks very similar. Yeah. And for the human eye, we might miss that, mm-hmm. but a passkey will not miss it. Right it simply won't work on that phishing website. Yeah. Yeah, this is making me think of all, all the different ways you can get around that, but we're going to get that to that later. Yes. <laughs> we're going to get to that later. Okay. Um, why? So you talked a little bit about like why they're important. Um, what drew you to work with the FIDO Alliance and the user experience of passkeys. There's a lot of other things you could have done with your time. You know, what, what drew you to this particular problem? Wow, really great question. Um, what I've come to learn in identity and access management is there are some people who sought this industry out and have got into it that way, but a lot of people stumble upon it. I'm mm-hmm. the latter. I stumbled upon it. I wasn't looking for it. I joined a a cybersecurity startup um, for many reasons and 
the fact that it was security related wasn't really the top of mind. If I fast forward eight years, I'm going to stay in security the rest of my career because there's so much <laughs> impact that can de design can have mm -hmm. in security. In fact, I, yeah. I like to say, you know, most industries, they've already recognized the, the competitive durability of, of great user experience, but mm -hmm. I'd say healthcare and, and cybersecurity are okay. still figuring that out. So um, I, got in, I got into it about eight years ago and um, into security, um, was aware of FIDO Alliance for a few years. And then a few years later, um, decided to become more involved initially by saying, hey, I, I know user experience. I, I'm familiar with the FIDO protocols at the time. This was four or five years ago. And just sharing some of the thoughts and ideas that I had with some of the leadership at, at FIDO Alliance around usability. Um, some of that was a bumpy road, as often the case with design working in a cross-disciplinary way with other, um, um, with other people that may not be as familiar with user experience and, and the perspective of user-centered design. It was bumpy, but it's always bumpy, so it was fine. Over the years, um, we and FIDO Alliance and all the folks, great folks that work at, with FIDO Alliance have really made the user experience more of a cornerstone of what um, Passkeys and FIDO Alliance has to offer. Yeah, I was um, I was jumping up in the air and waving my hand when you said you were going to stay in security. We just need so, I mean, <laughs> the security industry needs so, so much more in terms of UX uh, expertise and people really devoted to improving the user experience of security. Or the security user experience, Jared Spool likes to use the acronym um, SUCKS for security That's right. experience. So I, I <laughs> find that very amusing. You mentioned working with cross-disciplinary stakeholders. So I want to touch on, on this a little bit because especially in security, sometimes I think, well, not I think, I've gotten feedback from designers who feel like they don't have they don't have the right vocabulary. Um, they're left out of mm. security conversations, like stuff has been decided without their input. Um, and, you know, technical folks and folks in, in security often just kind of have their own way of, of talking about things. And it's just, well, it's because security and that's kind <laughs> of where the conversation ends. Right. And those aren't productive conversations. Um, so, how did you foster this cross-disciplinary collaboration? How did you get buy-in? Mm. Um, you know, it's hard to sell investing in the user experience, you know, even at non-security organizations, right? So like, mm -hmm. how do you, how do you, um, how do you convince stakeholders that you need to invest in this security user experience? Yeah. We could spend a whole podcast on just this, <laughs> yes. on just this topic. Right. I'm only giving you 30 seconds. So tell us all your <laughs> 30 <laughs> seconds. Other things, other things to talk about. Okay. Well, it, it kind of a little bit high level, but we'll yeah. see where the conversation goes. Is is it can't the conversation really can't be about design, mm -hmm. and even even can't be about usability, like you need to boil up 
what the impact of poor usability, you need to translate that into security outcomes that are quantifiable or other business outcomes that are quantifiable. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of, you know, executives really might not know in, intrinsically or know the value of um, user experience but they do understand, um, let's say, what conversion optimization would mean for new account creation. Right. Or a lot of companies, um, let's say e-commerce companies, do track first try sign-in success. So when I go to sign in, am I successful the first time I try to sign in? Interesting. Um, no, that, that is a, that's... That makes a lot of sense that they would track that. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's probably a leading indicator to, you know, someone just being like, forget it. I'm not coming back. Right. Absolutely. It yeah. correlates to uh, churn. It correlates yeah. to new to new ac- accounts being created for mm-hmm. the same user, mm-hmm. yep. which is also a problem right. um, yeah. for a lot of e-commerce companies and, and com- companies in general. So the, the, the big point there is that as a designer passionate about securities, you got to really speak the language. Some of that's going to be general business language that hopefully you already know, but some of it, you're going to really have to learn the language of security practitioners. Um, For me, at a certain point in my career, I realized I needed to go get a certificate in cybersecurity. And so I did. And uh, it was a twelve-week course, but really to build that foundational language for um, what risk is really all about. And I, I, I learned a ton, but it was, yeah, it, and it was so I could collaborate better with security prof- professionals, but also so I could more deeply empathize with the B two B side of the systems that that we design and my teams design. Um, because that's the persona, the persona that's using these systems, the, the security admins, the, um, the, um, the CISOs, the, um, um, all the different systems in the IT departments, those are the folks we need to have the most empathy, empathy with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll tell you, I, love, I, like that I know I went past the 30 seconds. I'll tell you just, there's so many ways to build buy-in. Dozens, but here's one great way that um, your design audience may use already. When you do usability research, oftentimes you're recording those sessions, whether they're in line in a lab, um, in person in a lab, mm-hmm. or online. You have video. Create the highlight reels. You know, create highlight reels of usability studies, and play them. Play them back. Play a four-minute clip for your executive team or for your manager. Or in my case, I play those videos for the FIDO Alliance board. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the room becomes silent. The room becomes very, very engaged. And then we can have a great conversation about what we saw, both good and bad, in the usability research. When you yeah. see real end users using a system, that's when the rubber hits the road. Yeah, kind of what I pulled out from what you just said there is if you can show your stakeholders 
those moments where the user is saying, yeah, forget it. Like, I'm just not going to sign up. Or like at this point, I would have just given up and I would have created a new account or I would have gone someplace else because I just can't deal with this nonsense. Um, Those are the moments that they're going to care about because those are the moments they churn, that they don't come back, that they don't buy the thing, right? Like those are all, those all lead to those negative business outcomes that, you know, your stakeholders don't want. So I really like that advice. Yeah. You told me about one major UX research finding that kind of made you stop and say, like, we have to reevaluate what we're doing here with pass keys. Can you just walk us through that story and, and what, what happened? Sure. Um, yeah, sure. This... It was a dark night. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. A long time ago. And, um, once upon a time, about a year ago, it wasn't even that far, that long ago. Um, yeah. We were doing some research. Um, we hire uh, third this was this is this is in Fido Alliance. So we hired a third party UX research firm. Um, they have an army of cognitive psychologists that run this kind of research all the time. this this was last year this was the third time we've gone through this process of doing formal usability and UX research. And prior to conducting the research, we had you know working groups, in Fido Alliance that were from a lot of the companies that I mentioned earlier and from what, who we call RPs. So these are companies like, you know, e-commerce companies, gaming companies, um, financial institutions. And RPs says referring party? Relying party. Re- yeah, it's oh, a technical term. Okay. Yeah, it's relying party. It's, it's, you just think of them as the website. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When you go to Amazon.com, you're at the Amazon's the relying party. Got it. Okay. So all of these folks, including myself, were like, "Hey, you know, we're trying to figure out what are the optimal times to ask people to create a passkey." So, I'm. Let's just take Acme, Acme.com. I'm an existing customer of Acme.com. I've been using username and password for years. Now there's this thing called a passkey. How do you? upgrade or migrate somebody from password to passkey. We all thought that the best place is just after you sign in, mm-hmm. hey, there's a great way that you can no longer have to remember your password. It's more secure. It's faster, easier, simpler. And we just weren't, we were, we, we weren't getting the conversion, you know, the signups for passkeys that we wanted. And it, and it was even worse than that. We were getting really low conversion. And we, tr- we tried, we iterated, tried different ways, different messaging to prompt. We iterated, tried different messaging prompts. And that's when we stopped the project. I, I, I said, hey, we got we to gotta stop and go back. We got to do some more just one-on-one cu- customer interviews and, and um, try to see this with a fresh eye. And ultimately what we realized is that and it seems so simple and obvious now. When people are signing into something, their task, 100 it's never to sign in. It has nothing to do with authentication. When they're signing in, their task is to refill a prescription. 
as to, a user i want to sign in yeah it <laughs> doesn't happen no one ever. <laughs> it said no one ever yes exactly that's exactly the users the, the anti-user story people want to sign in to buy the pair of shoes you know to um make sure i can get that ride that's going to take me to the airport and not make me miss my plane or um a thousand other reasons other than signing in and people just saw this thing of a passkey. I don't know what that is. And, and the vast majority of people just didn't want to create them there. What we learned the, on a really, really positive note, the outcome was incredibly powerful and positive because what we learned is right now with the awareness of passkeys, it's still new, starting to become more known as TikTok and Google and Apple and, um, uh, Best Buy, so many other companies are now implementing them, but they're still relatively new. We learned that the optimal place to ask people to create a passkey are during account-related moments in their journey. And in these account-related moments, account-related stuff is relevant. It is their task. Yeah. So the three account-related moments that are most um obvious to create a passkey is during account creation. When I create a new account, man, you should be, all, everybody listening in, every company you're in, you should be looking into passkeys. That's the optimal time to create a passkey. But also you should make, you should have the ability to create a passkey from your account settings. Mm -hmm. Whatever the service is in your account settings, there should be an option to create a passkey and use that instead of a password. And then third is when you're going through account recovery. Mm -hmm. I forgot this my is, past. This is the one place that I think is really interesting that you found because it, yeah. it makes a lot of sense, but it's another one. It's like, well, you know, it seems obvious after the fact, but, you know, it's it's really cool. That's really cool. Key finding. Absolutely. And that I can't agree with you more that the nuance there is that you forgot your password. So you have to recover your account. Nobody likes doing this. They have to recover their account. We, after you've been identity proofed in that account recovery, you're essentially signed in. Um, you've been identity proof. So for and example, that's, you get an email, you did the forgot password. It sends it to your email. You click the link. Now exactly. you're Yeah. And for different services, maybe you have to provide some KBA, some knowledge-based authentication to what was your favorite pet when you were a child or whatever other knowledge-based factor. Whatever the service requires, you've gone through that identity proofing. So that's the moment where you create a new password. So we, off, we say our guidance is that you can offer to create a pass key instead of a password. But the super interesting, we learned so much more during this testing. Some people, if they started to create a new password, they want to finish creating mm -hmm. a new password. Mm -hmm. So they have the option to create a passkey, but half of them roughly say, hey, I want to finish creating my password. So let them, actually let them finish creating a new password. When the password's now created and you say complete, then offer to create a passkey. And then people were like, perfect. I'd love to create a passkey then. They're still in that account mindset. I don't have to ever go through this thing again. I just went through. So lots of, of great learnings, even though we initially had a big roadblock there. Yeah, that's so interesting. 
so in my notes, I, I, I wrote like every, every design decision and certainly every authentication mechanism. So passwords, um, you know, and even pass keys have trade-offs. They have unintended consequences. We talked about the, the whack-a-mole experience, right? Mm -hmm. um, so yes, pass keys can provide a better user experience compared to passwords, um, but inevitably threat actors will find clever ways around pass keys as well, or they'll, they'll find clever ways to trick users. Um, they'll find places that users make mistakes and, you know, whether that's, you know, even like the, the person implementing pass keys on, you know, on the back end or, you know, the person implementing them, you know, the, the, the person using the, uh, relying party, right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Relying party. Um, how do you account for these things? And, you know, who do you work with? What sort of questions do you ask, you know, to account for these scenarios? Yeah. The more the collaboration we can have between these groups, the better. Um, uh, we talked about a little bit earlier about designers needing to learn the language of security. You know, that goes a long way to be able to have a conversation with the CISO or with security professional um, and have real productive conversations with them. Um, but the important thing is to get all those, to get the people in the room, both actually and metaphorically, mm -hmm. um, and collaborating. You know, I'll say um, at the FIDO Alliance, you know, there is, there's, I run the user experience working group, but there's also a security and privacy working group. You know, we also have a government deployment working group who's working with how governments think about regulation related to security in different parts of the world. So at times, um, in fact, just a few months ago, we had a project that was a UX project, but I pulled in people from the security and privacy working group. I pulled in... Um, security folks and engineers um, from some of the technical working groups and even pulled in a lawyer from the government group who's talking with these regulators around the world. And we all had a kickoff and a brainstorm and we did a fig jam, I think it was at the time. And, um, you know, to try to help each other fill those blind spots that we had when we were thinking about this. Um, it's an extension, in fact, to passkeys that's that's being developed and, and will be a, available perhaps later this year or the year after. And so um, getting all those people in the room collaborating was very, very helpful. Yeah, what do you, so if I'm, say I'm a designer working on an, an enterprise app and I'm, you know, I said to you, that sounds nice, Kevin, but you know, <laughs> I, I can't, I can't even get our legal team to return my emails. You know, our security team doesn't want to talk to us. Like, this just seems like such a daunting task. And like, can't sure. we just like go and design something? Like, what advice would you give them? What would you say to this, that person? Um, I, I would say, like most things in life, be persistent, have tenacity. Don't expect a huge win right away. Mm-hmm look for the small wins that you can build upon. And it's perfectly okay to have a very small win that you could then build upon to a slightly larger win and a slightly larger win. 
I've seen this in security and I've seen this in other, I've experienced this myself. Look for those small wins and build upon them each time. Bringing a user-centered, a human-centered sensibility and ethos to security does not happen overnight. And it's usually, I've found it to be a two to four year process to build a cultural understanding of how security and usability works together within an organization. It's a multi-year um, journey that you're on and just go for those small wins initially. Know that you're going to be planting seeds that may take a year or two to really start to show signs of progress. But if you're consistent with it and you go back to those security teams often, you do your own homework, create some really compelling questions. Maybe there's you don't understand something about private key cryptography or how a Because it's works. so easy to understand. I mean, yeah, I know. And come to them with questions. And even just, you know, if there's no other outcome, but they help you learn, that's a small yeah. win and you can build upon that. Uh, one of the questions in the 20 or so that I threw at you just a few minutes ago um, was how do you how do you account for or anticipate the actions of threat actors and i'm curious what that looked like if you can go into any more detail of some of the things that you considered how did you account for them and, and by how do you account for them i mean um you know did it change the any of the design decisions that you ended up making yeah they they always do yeah. um so Many examples come to mind. I'll, I'll talk about one at um, the startup, uh, Trusona is the name of the startup. Um, in the early days, we had something called a, an SRB, a system review brainstorm. And it was um, um, just a handful of people in a room who would meet sometimes every day when early on, but other times uh, maybe once a week or every other week. And model the threats mm -hmm. model um, mainly driven by the security practitioners um, to say I'm an attacker I would attack in this way almost acting as a, a red team mm -hmm. and um, initially me as the new design lead would just absorb and mm -hmm. learn and then as i understood the system more i would say hey well that's going to lead to a usability issue here right and then we could have more nuanced conversations but it, it really in the other examples even in fido alliance and other contexts you need people that are really well versed in what those um what those threats could be to articulate what the threats could be. And then we talk through the different scenarios, the different trade-offs. Yeah. Yeah, it's so interesting. Um, do you think, it, do, looking specifically at, or talking specifically about pass keys, do you think that there are trade-offs that have been made that either negatively impact security or negatively impact the user experience? Uh, both. It, yeah, it's never perfect because you have privacy. Right. Which is another, it's privacy, usability, and security. 
-hmm. you know, and those three end up creating this iron triangle, you could call it, you know, that you having perfect identity, privacy preserving system, perfect security, perfect usability, it's, it doesn't really exist. So there's always trade-offs between um, those three legs of the stool, whatever metaphor you want to use. Yeah. Um, so an example of that. Well, um, with pass keys, to ensure interoperability and that you could use a pass key kind of anywhere, um, there's a protocol uh, that FIDO Alliance has developed a specification for and is out there in the wild, um, available to billions of users around the globe and implemented by, um, you know, brands like Google where there's billions scale users um, interacting with this stuff. It's called um, cross-device cross sign-in. And you can, if you're say trying to sign into your Windows machine, but you wanna use a passkey that's on your iPhone, you can do that. It just involves a QR code you need to scan initially and involves some communications between your phone and your laptop. Mm -hmm. And it's overall that is difficult for a lot of people to be successful with. It's a usability challenge. Mm. So cross-device sign-in is still a bumpy Because it can be section. difficult to scan a QR code, right? Um, if your vision is impaired or if you can't hold up the phone to scan the QR code, like it just, it involves a lot that is potentially difficult. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. There's an incredible amount of nuance around this. Mm -hmm. You know, things like, I'll go a little bit deeper here so it, it makes more sense. It, with FIDO, there's a concept of proximity that's really, really, really important for security of passkeys. What proximity, when I say proximity, what that means is we want to ensure that the physical proximity of your phone, that, I, that iPhone I talked about, is physically nearby the laptop that you want to sign into. Right. Because you don't want to be able to have a bad actor on the other side of the world being able to use a passkey to sign into a laptop that's 10,000 miles away. Right. So proximity, like feet, number, like six feet away, mm -hmm. is really important to prove. That requires, um, you know, Bluetooth to be on. We don't actually use Bluetooth. The devices don't need to be paired, but there are some requirements to establish that proximity. Mm -hmm. um, or another um, example of proximity related to FIDO and passkeys is in the Apple ecosystem, you can share a passkey. And people say, oh my gosh, how is that secure? You know, you could accidentally share it with anybody or you could be fished and asked to share it with somebody you're on a phone call with. But the way that um, the contact sharing works in the Apple ecosystem is it requires the person you're sharing it to, to be a contact in your contact app. And it requires proximity. So that removes the large scale attack vector 
that somebody could now fish you to try to get your pass key by sharing it with them yeah. because you don't have them in your contacts and they're not physically nearby you. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are some of the, you know, where the security and the usability kind of play hand in hand. A couple examples of where they both do. Yeah. Well, I, those are great examples. Kind of thinking through, you know, well, what if this happens? Or, you know, what if that happens? Kind of going through that, that rabbit hole of like all of these different scenarios. Yes. Um, but, you know, saying, okay, here's how we can address those. And as every security practitioner will tell you, you cannot eliminate risk, you know, but that you can, you can think about how you're going to address it, right? And, and get it, um, address it in a way that you feel comfortable, right? Like you can't just like when you walk outside and, and walk on the street, like there's, there's no guarantee that you're not going to get run over, right? Yeah. I could throw out another example if you like. Yeah, go for it. Yeah. Pass keys are more secure than a password. But right now where we are in adoption, a lot of companies will allow both. Mm-hmm. So you have a password, you create a pass key, but you could still use either. So then one of the questions becomes, um, at what level do I need to be identity proof before a service should allow me to create a pass key? Right. You know, um, that, and so is it enough to just sign in with a username and password and then I'm allowed to create a passkey? If a threat actor has my username and password because it's been pawned and it's available in the dark web and they're just doing credential stuffing attacks and they get in and then they create a passkey, well, how how do we... What does that mean for the company? Now, each company is going to answer that in different ways. Right. A bank might require you to do 2FA before you create a passkey. Or they'll have other fraud controls that are behind the scenes that the user doesn't have to actively um, take part in to help mitigate mitigate those risks. Whereas an e-commerce company... um, that has a different threat model, they might be perfectly fine for now. Hey, just create a passkey and you can have your password and you can create a passkey right after you sign in with your password or what they might have a a lower requirement for creating that initial passkey, but it's so contextual. It depends on not one size fits all. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And that's, you know, I think that's one of the, the difficult aspects of like trying to describe to designers like I think sometimes they want like um they want like a recipe book you know for like solving the security user experience but it just it simply does not exist because different organizations are 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 so different and their technology is different and the risk appetite is different and you know you just have to I mean, my advice is to just try to ask better questions so that you can get to, you know, the solution that is going to make sense for your organization. Like there is no recipe book Mm. for, you know, just do this and like, and, you know, your outcome will be this. It just, it's unfortunately the answer isn't that simple. Better questions. That's good advice. Yeah. Thanks. That's plus one for me today. (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, thank you so much, Kevin. Do you have any uh, parting words for designers who are interested in the security user experience? Um, get involved. It's a great, it's a great field to get in. And um, even sometimes when the economy is down, like cybersecurity, can most of it tends to keep trucking along, and um, that's great. I think over time, design will mature in the security world. And for the designers listening, I'd say get into it now because you can help lead that change. I mean, exactly what you're what you're doing right in the book is so amazing. I can't wait for the book to come out. And, um, you know, you can be a part of this uh, really great change that's that's happening in in security and, and in relation to design. So I would just encourage people to to get involved in this. It's it's super exhilarating industry to be in. It is. And there's some really, really smart, cool people in the industry, too. If folks want to get in touch with you, what is the best way for them to do that? Uh, probably just on LinkedIn, Kevin okay. Goldman. I think it's LinkedIn slash whatever Kevin Goldman. I really appreciate you taking the time. This has been so enlightening. Um, I just, I learned more and more about passkeys and it's just such an exciting space. So I really, really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah. Well, thank you for having me, Heidi, and um, look forward to continued collaboration as we go.